continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And here we find ourselves in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And as we have been doing in, over the weeks, we're not taking a close look at the Gospel of Mark. We're really kind of zooming out and taking the big picture. Uh, you might think of yourself uh, sitting there looking at a, a bug that your child has brought to you and you're just observing God's creation. Well, you could certainly take a, a seat at the table and pull out the magnifying glass or the camera and zoom way in and really take a deep look at what God's creation looks like and marvel at that. And there's certainly time to do that with this study in the Gospel of Mark. I've thought very often as I've been preparing these that there's a day coming, maybe 20 years from now, who knows if the Lord tarries and I'm still in uh, gospel ministry, where we can take a deeper look, a more introspective look at the Gospel of Mark. But we're, we're zooming out. We're just taking the big picture look. And so you might come this morning and think, well, I want to know more about this particular passage. Tell me about these pigs or tell me about uh, what it means to be demon-possessed or tell me more about this or that. But uh, we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to zoom out and we're going to take a panoramic view of this, of this passage of Mark 5, 1 through 20. And really, as we've observed, Mark writes... Uh, was such a beautiful, uh, in such a beautiful way. We, we have such beautiful word pictures here. You almost can insert yourself really into the story just as you're reading it and sort of see all the things that are going on. He doesn't leave too many details out. I remember the first time I listened to G.K. Chesterton and his writings. And if you've never listened or read any of Chesterton's writings, he's an extremely um, descriptive writer. You can just see it in your mind. And Mark is much the same way. C.S. Lewis has this quote to say, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialistic and magician with the same delight. We're going to see in the picture, in the passage this morning, this man who has been possessed by many demons. And there's the tendency to either swing one way or the other. We can either think, well, this is just sort of an analogous description. It really isn't real life. We sort of downplay the power of Satan. We sort of downplay the... Uh, the power of dark forces, or we certainly have seen many who have swung to the other side and become so obsessed with it that they leave out the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power that Christ has over the devil. So we don't want to fall into either one of those camps this morning. So we're not going to lend ourselves too much weight to what is going on here, and yet we're not going to just simply bypass it as if it's trivial and it has no application for our lives. Not so at all, as we'll see this morning. We actually have four points to this morning's sermon. As I spoke last week, I typically speak with three, and today we have four. Verses 1 through 5, we have a man in bondage. 6 through 13, Jesus delivers that man. 14 through 17, the response of the people. And then 18 through 21, the response of the delivered man. A man in bondage. Look with me at the passage there. They came to the other side of the sea, Probably, this is one of the few times Mark 
is breaking from his thematic nature and actually writing in a way that is chronological. So they have just come through this great storm. They've gone across the sea and now landing on the other side. And when Jesus has stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And as we'll see in a few minutes, it's not simply one. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. This man, possessed by many demons, or we could say just as a across the board, possessed by the devil, and this man coming to Christ, and he runs up to him. And this man has uh, quite the description. Notice he's an, he's an individualistic person. His sin, or the sin that binds him, we could say for ourselves, has caused him to be so uh, removed from all of society. He finds that the place he enjoys the most, or he dwells the most, is with the dead. He lived among the tombs. And there had been some emphasis to reach out to this man, obviously, and sort of constrain him or control him. You see, they bind him. They could not bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. He was the, the outcast on the very edge of town. He was the, the person that the parents warned their children about. Do you hear that? That's that man. As he would cry out among the mountains. And I imagine there was probably some sort of echo going on. No one had any interest in him. And, and in fact, he was probably the one that was sort of glad he was on the outskirts. He was bound by the enemy couple things I want us to notice. Look at verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. You know, the, one of the goals of Satan, one of the goals of the enemy is to destroy those made in the image of God. Satan wants to do all he can to destroy those who are made in the image of God. And if he can't destroy them, then let's mar them and deform them and maim them and scar them as much as possible. But he is not and will never be more powerful than Christ. And he may be able to mar outward appearances due to the consequences of sin, but he can never mar the inward heart of one under the rule and reign of Christ, one under the kingdom of God. But he'll do what all, all he can. He would love for you to have scars from addictions to sin. And yet what a joy it is to proclaim the glory of Christ that has freed you from those addictions. We've noticed there as we read this morning from the gospel narrative, the quote there in your bulletin. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Well, not going into necessarily the demon possession side of things, but all of us in the darkness of our sin, in the death of our sin, were bound and enslaved to sin. I think we can certainly look at this man and we think, well, he's one of the 
extreme cases. How is there any practical application from this man to our lives? So let's put me under the microscope this morning. Let's put me under the magnifying lens and you can take note for your own soul. But if you're just to take my life and and ask the question, how does it compare to this man who is bound in under the darkness of sin? We're going to see the response of the delivered man here in a minute that is in bondage in this particular part of the passage here. But for implication, I've got to ask myself, is the reason I don't share Christ with the fervor that we're going to see this man share Christ is because I see myself as better than this man who is in bondage. Now certainly I've not done all the evils that this man has done. Some of you might even say that I'm a, I'm a fairly nice guy. I don't cut myself as this man was cutting himself. I've never done drugs. I've never run away from home. I've never been addicted to these type of things. But a nice guy goes to hell on slicker rails than a bad man, than a mean guy. I've looked at that woman with lust in my heart. I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen. I've even had hatred in my heart for another. And I'm not sure about you, but that list doesn't sound really any better than the list of the bad guy. You see, part of, part of being a Christian now means that we have the mind to understand the darkness of our sin in some small way. And yet our pride so often wants to rear its head and compare our sin with others rather than in the light of and in the presence of a holy, righteous, omnipotent, all-knowing God. I so often identify my sin in the light of what I haven't done rather than in the light of what I have done. We oftentimes so think, well, I haven't done all that rather than saying, I have done this. I'm not a racist. I I don't hit my wife. I didn't abort my child. I didn't cuss. I don't take the Lord's name in vain. I put money in the church basket. I read my Bible. I go to church. I try to be nice to people. I gave a tract to a guy this week. As if to say, those things are going to be what saves me. And my only testimony is, and if you're here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, your only testimony is the same as mine. I was a sinner, but he is a great savior. I have no other claim. Only Christ is the one who saves. Only Christ, if you are a believer, has saved you and will keep you from ever being, pardon my bad grammar, unsaved. He'll never relinquish you. We're no better than this man. We really aren't. In the darkness of our sin, we're no better than this man. Now, this man's outward sin certainly looks more heinous, but it comes from the same heart as ours. And without Christ, we're as bound as this man was. And we're unable to be constrained in our sin as this man was unable to be constrained by the power of the devil. 
But we have hope. 6 through 13, Jesus delivers the man. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Legion uh, was the was the description of the largest unit of the, of the Roman army. At full strength, it could be as much as 6,000 soldiers, and this certainly doesn't mean that there was 6,000 demons in this man, only in the sense that there were great many. There might have been as much as 2,000, but this man had a great amount of possession. Look at verse 7, and if you look at your Bible there, you see, what have you to do with me, son, Jesus, son of the most high God? And I find it striking that the devil is responding in that way in light of verse 41. If you look over above the the page there, verse 41 of chapter 4, and they, meaning the disciples in the boat, were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? And we talked about last week that for us, that's a rhetorical question. For them, the disciples didn't quite know it. They had intellectual knowledge and faith and understanding, but it hadn't quite sunk down to a realization of who he was. And yet here the devil knows who this man is. James 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I find that's a, that's a helpful verse to use in evangelism. When I ask someone, well, do you know about God? Or do you believe in God? And they'll say, oh yes, I believe in God. And I'll say, that's good. But so does the devil. You gotta give me more than that. You gotta tell me more than just the fact that you believe in God. Because here he's highlighting the fact that the devil believes and probably has a, and does have a better understanding of who this God is in all his glory than certainly the disciples did at that time. We're encouraged with the fact that verse 13, these demons wanting to not be cast into the, the pit of fire in Revelation 20 verse 10, we're told that one day, Satan and his evil forces will be thrown forever into the lake of fire. And here, analogous, in an analogous way, that being happened. These pigs being rushing down into the sea and being drowned. And yet, this man, uh, these demons not wanting to be cast at this point into the lake of fire. So they're saying, they're asking us, um, for, we are be- beg- for we are many, verse 10, and he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. I think it's Luke's gospel says not to send them into the abyss. And yet verse 13, so he gave them permission. The demons are never, the devil is never on an equal footing with God. God is in complete control. And the devil has not the ability to do anything without permission or allowance by God. And here Christ giving them the permission to go where they asked to go. And I don't know about you, But to my own shame, I thought, wow, Jesus, really? Didn't you know those 2,000 pigs were valuable to someone? You sort of 
She would have trampled over a bunch of people, a people's livelihood, people's maybe even food. This is probably a Gentile region in order to help one man. And I say that to my shame because compared to the eternal soul of a man, what is 2,000 pigs? It's nothing. It's not even a blip on the radar screen. And here we, here we have just a, a sweet picture of this, what is told throughout the Gospels of Christ, leaving the 99 to go find the one. The soul of one man being eternally more valuable than anything here on this earth. No other person could bind this man. No other person could constrain this man. But Jesus, the son of the most high God, had all the power to cast out this, these demons. We noted last week that Christ is Lord of the storm. We would note this week that Christ is Lord over all things, even the spiritual realm. There is nothing that is not under the power of Christ. Christ casting out, Christ delivering this man. Christ has done for the same for us. He's taken us from darkness into light. He's taking us from bondage into freedom. And he can do that for us even now as Christians. We, we can slip back into sin. And we can, become, we can become addicted to it. In whatever form or shape or fashion, really bad or seemingly not so bad, and yet in the light of a holy God, horrible, and yet Christ, by his power, can free us from all of that. Snap those chains in a second. And we come then underneath the lordship of Christ. As we prepare to close, let's look at the way that the, re- the people responded, verses 14 through 17. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They responded the wrong way. They responded with the wrong type of fear. Fear that did not lead to worship, verse 15, and they were afraid. And they actually appear more afraid of this man than when he was in bondage. You know, we pray that God would save people. We pray that God would break chains of addiction. And yet when Christ does that, Sometimes it's more frightening. Is it really true? Can I really trust that Christ has done the work of saving grace upon this person's life in this particular area? He's now in my church. He was safer outside the church. Now I've got to really trust that Christ has done a freeing work. But the power of Christ does do a freeing work and it makes notable change in our lives. Look at verse 15. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had a legion, sitting there, clothed, not naked any longer, 
clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You can know when Christ has come into a life of a person because you begin to see noticeable change in their life. One of the first things that you can notice is they now think differently. They're in their right mind. They see what they have been doing as wrong and they now see the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, we're told that we now have the mind of Christ. And that's one of the first evidences of a changed life by the power of Christ is they now have the ability to think. They're not in the darkness of their minds as Romans 1 and Romans 2 tells us. But now they can think. They see They understand because of Christ in them. Let's not respond to the work of Christ changing us and others in fear. Let's rejoice in that. Let's look for evidences of that grace to continue to come forth. Let's respond as this man who's relieved of his bondage responded. Look at verse 18 through 21. This is in many ways, verse 19, a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. In verse 16, you have this sort of interesting response. You wouldn't have expected the response of the people to be this way. Maybe a bit, but you wouldn't have expected them to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And in verse 18, you wouldn't have expected Christ to resist this man's desire to come and be with him. In fact, you're sort of thinking, Christ, aren't you trying to gather those? Isn't there room for one more in the boat? You could take him to the other side. And yet Christ says, nope, I would desire that you would stay here. One of the things I want to highlight for you is this. Up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, those who were coming to Christ were co- and, that, and that Christ was saying, No, don't go back and tell people, I've healed you. Remember all the way back in Mark 1, 2, and 3? I've healed you, and yet Christ says, don't go tell people. Why? Because they weren't telling them about the saving power of Christ. They were telling him about the physical healing power of Christ. Christ's mission was to proclaim the kingdom of Christ. Repent and believe, Mark 1.15. People weren't doing that. And yet this man, wanting to continue to be with Christ, and Christ says, ah, that's a sign. That's an evidence that you understand. I want you to stay. And I have given you a particular work, a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. I want you to go, the authority of Christ, sending out with specific instructions. Go home to your friends and tell them, Notice this, if you're marking, if you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you, mark, maybe a little box, underline, Lord, and then verse 20, Jesus. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Christ, go tell them how much I have power to save. Go tell them how much I have freed you from the bondage of sin and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear all you who hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the work of saving grace that Christ has done for you? Or is it simply that we're better than the next person? 
But if we see our sin in the light of a holy God, that we cannot but give evidence of saving faith. It's not something that we conjure up and we, we have to do out of obligation, but something that overflows. So my application this morning is not primarily go tell more people about Jesus. Please do go tell more people about Jesus, but rather look to the wonder of what Christ has done for you. And then you won't have to conjure up a telling people about Jesus because that's all you'll be able to do. The fact that he has freed you from the bondage of sin and death. And he has had mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. I remember growing up thinking, boy, if I just had that testimony, you know, the one where it starts so bad and then it gets so good. You know, really what I'm saying is I was a better sinner than that person. He didn't have to do as much to save me. If he'd only had to do more, he'd get more glory. No, he had to do everything. I was as dead as the next person. And he saved me. There's an old hymn. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. You've probably never sung it before, but hear the words. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed his name to bear. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'll take him with me anywhere. I'll tell the world how Jesus saved me and how he gave me a life brand new. And I know that if you trust him, that all he gave me, he'll give to you. I'll tell the world that he's my savior. No other one could love me so. My life, my all is his forever. And where he leads me, I will go. I'll tell the world that he is coming. It may be near or far away, but we must live as if his his coming would be tomorrow or today. For when he comes and life is over, for those who love him, there's more to be. Eyes have never seen the wonders that he's preparing for you and me. Oh, tell the world that you're a Christian. Be not ashamed his name to bear. Oh, tell the world that you are a Christian and take him with you everywhere. We need to tell that to one another. We need to tell that to others. If you're here this morning, I don't, I don't know the deep, dark recesses of maybe sin you're struggling with. Maybe you have an addiction. Maybe it's to drugs. Maybe it's to alcohol. Maybe it's to sex. Maybe it's to pornography. Maybe it's to, maybe it's to being kind. What? You can have an addiction to being kind? Yes, you can have an addiction to sin that is outside of the rest of Christ. I'm not resting in the finished work of Christ. I'm resting in Kindness to be my saving grace. Whatever it would be this morning, we have got to be reminded that he is the Lord of all and he has the ability to break all. He has the ability to change everything. We have a story to tell. And if this morning we're sitting here struggling as believers with the story to tell, then maybe we need to go back and look again at the story. Be reminded of what he's done. And if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, I have no story to tell, then join the storyline. Realize that there is no sin black enough that the blood of Christ cannot rescue you from, cannot save you from. Realize that there is no sin black enough that can be saved by anything other than by Jesus Christ. Realize that Christ not only came and died for your sin, but he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. He was raised from the dead to, to 
tell us, to, to give us the testimony that he was a sinless Savior, no longer, no, not ever needing to be under the punishment of death for eternity because he was perfect. And so he died for us to take our place upon that cross, but he was not sinful. He was sinless. And so he was raised to to life again. And if you're sitting here today, then you can know if you will put your faith and trust and hope in his death and his resurrection, then you have hope of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, we have hope to be resurrected and be with him for eternity because of the work of Christ being resurrected upon our behalf. Christ is a great savior. We have a story to tell. Let's be faithful to tell it in the simple ways, whether it's with our children, whether it's in prayer or on the table, just telling the wonder of the work of Christ for us. Let's pray. Father, we have a story to tell. It's not my story. It's not something I've done. But it's a story that as believers we're all a part of. That we were bound in our sin. That we were unable to be saved by anyone or anything. And then you came on the scene. And we resisted. We knew you were Christ, the King, the Savior, and yet I'd rather have my sin than the trials of repentance and belief. And yet you overcame that and you drew us in and you, you sought us out and you called us and you, you pulled us in and you saved us by your marvelous grace. And you not only saved us, you empower us and you live within us and you strengthen us for each and every day that we might live our lives as a, as, as a witness, as a testimony for the glory of God to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that there wasn't one sin that was too black to be saved from in my life. I thank you, Father, that there wasn't one addiction that was so addictive you couldn't break it. I thank you, Father, that there's, for all of us today, not one thing we can be addicted to, even saved in our sin, that you cannot smash and give us freedom. I thank you, Father, for 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that though we were in sin, we are no longer. Such were some of us. We have been changed. We have been changed by the light of Christ. 
And Father, may that be our story. May we go home to our friends. May we go home to our families. May we go home to our children. May we go home to our coworkers. May we go this week in marveling at the wondrous work of Christ upon our behalf that we simply tell, not of me, but of you. Father, we rejoice that we have eyes to see and ears to hear this truth this morning as believers in Jesus Christ. May we not just be hearers of the word, but may we be doers. May our minds be centered and renewed upon the work of Christ for us. May we sit at your feet and learn of you this week. We thank you again for this time. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.